Welcome back to a very special Golden Globes edition of A Movie and an Argument with Alyssa and Swin. I am Alyssa Rosenberg, the critic at Think Progress and a columnist at Slate in the Atlantic, and I am joined, as always, by... My name is Aswin Subsang, but please call me Swin. I'm the Interactive Writing Fellow at Mother Jones DC Bureau, and also their movie guy. Alyssa, thank you so much for joining us back here at the Mother Jones Podcast Studio. It feels like forever... Since we've well, done a lot of these. Well, you know, we got hit by the holidays and by travel and by, you know, the end of the year is always a difficult time, but it is uh, always a pleasure to trek down here to the F Street offices of Mother Jones. Um, and, you know, especially because we are entering award season, particularly with the announcement of the Golden Globe nominees today. Um, anything on the list that stood out to you that didn't stand out to you? Um, I mean, the thing that sort of stands out for me is that they nominated Smash, one of the worst shows of the year, for things. And so everything on this list needs to be taken with, you know, about a liter of maybe pink Himalayan sea salt. Um, so I'm, you know, sort of starting from a position of suspicion. Um, one thing I think is interesting um, is that for the Best Motion Picture nominees, two of the five movies have main characters of color, which is not something that you see that often. That's Django Unchained, which we are under embargo from discussing in detail uh, until next week, and Life of Pi. And then you've also got two other movies, um, well, actually three other movies that are concerned with either sort of uh, world affairs or explicitly with race, um, Lincoln, Zero Dark Thirty, and Argo. Uh, so it's a very sort of, I mean, it, in terms of issue movies, like it's a big year for issue movies at the Golden Globes. Uh, you've got our relationship with Iran and Argo. You have slavery and Django Unchained. Life of Pi is sort of the most meditative of the bunch. Um, but then obviously Lincoln and Zero Dark Thirty are concerned with some of the same issues of civil liberties, of um, sort of how you handle yourself on a war footing. Uh, so it's a, it's a sort of meaty set of nominees, at least in the Best Picture category. I agree. Um, with the best picture part, but back to your first point about Smash. That is, I mean... Yeah, let's talk about Smash for a minute. Well, you know how much I've railed against the very term of guilty pleasure. I don't believe in it. If you like something, don't feel guilty about it. Agreed. for lack of a better term, it is a guilty pleasure of mine. I totally understand all the critical reaming of it, particularly in the last half and particularly the last third of the first season. But I really can't wait for it to come back. What do you enjoy about it? Like, I I need something here. I need someone to sort of explain this to me. As someone who um, fell in love with Broadway at a young age, both in terms of stage plays and just straight up, like, hardcore musicals, um, I do like the music because it's written by the same guys who did, like, Hairspray in the uh, Broadway or um, musical adaptation of Catch Me If You Can. It's just good music, good soulful covers from time to time, and... Uh, it's just almost like sugar-coated trash that I just really, really? enjoy. I mean, because I feel like, so I like musicals a lot. I mean, Nashville is, you know, my favorite new drama of the fall. I'm sort of irritated Same that here. it's not in the best television series, comedy, or musical. I mean, honestly, I maybe could have accepted Smash if Nashville was in the mix. But Smash is such an inferior product to Nashville, right? And the thing that I really yeah. don't like about Smash is that it spends all of this time telling me what I'm supposed to feel, right? I mean, 
you know, uh, Catherine McPhee's Karen is clearly sort of the inferior choice in this competition to play Marilyn Monroe, right? I mean, her voice isn't as strong or as sort of classically mm-hmm. Broadway. She can't dance as well as Ivy, uh, the woman she's competing against. She doesn't look as much like Marilyn Monroe. She's sort of naive in a lot of ways that are really irritating. And so there's nothing on screen that should make us root for her. And yet the show feels the need to do all of this really stagey stuff, like having people rise rapturously from their seats when she sings anything. You know, I feel like I'm sort of being, you know, cinematically waterboarded by the show and believing that I should like Catherine McPhee. And, you know, thus far, uh, torture has not produced accurate information. <laughs> that, well... I guess that's what what makes it easier for me. I just happen to like Catherine McPhee. So you and Dan Feinberg from Hit Fix. You're like Catherine McPhee stands. Team McPhee. Oh, why she's so boring? She's like she is radiant. She is. I'll go with radiant. That that's happening. the polite version of how you feel about Catherine McPhee. I think it's pretty polite. Okay, it's a pretty polite way of putting it, but. Uh, we're at an impasse here. Let's move it's on. It's true. So well, I, can, when... I, can, I can at least in that category root for girls to beat Smash and explode your brain. Okay. It's time to talk about girls again. Not until season two. And let's also save Smash for it's season two when it premieres like Fair sometime enough. in February or whenever. But also, um, it's a Golden Globe, so I'm not sure I would be too heartbroken if what I hate wins. Like, the newsroom is nominated for Best Ugh. Television Series as a drama. And uh, Jeff Daniels. I mean, I feel like Jeff Daniels is not bad in the newsroom. No, not at all. You know, I think, he, you know, if I was going to give a nomination for acting from the newsroom, it would probably be to Olivia Munn, who I thought was great. Absolutely. Can we talk about this sort of the year of Olivia Munn? Because in between the newsroom and... Um, Magic Mike, my perception of her totally changed. I always found her sort of irritating and flaky. Um, well, what, what was she in besides The Daily Show? But You know, she was on... An... Was she on Attack of the Show? I think Yes, yeah, right. she was. That's what she so got So she started. was sort of, you know, she was in these kind of... Present, she was this, you know, in these sort of hot girl presenter roles. And in Magic Mike, her character was just so sort of game and smart and funny and really comfortable in her own body in a way that I thought was impressive. Mm-hmm. Um and then on the you know in the newsroom she's smart she had some of the few good storylines about sort of what it actually takes to you know report news and massage sources and you know dealing with sexism in cable news i just thought she was great and i i thought this was like for me this was the year of olivia munn and Walt, walton goggins who is shamefully i mean i thought the fact that justified wasn't recognized anywhere in here was just shameful no absolutely but uh about olivia munn on the newsroom she was Maybe the only character, and I, I, this is a credit to her acting, when she was spouting stuff about, like, horrible romantic subplots. Like, oh, I, I'm single because you never asked me out. Or something horrible. Like, I, I didn't completely roll my eyes. I think just because she somehow manages to sell it. While everybody else just fell flat on their face. Whenever... I, actually, I actually found that scene with her and Don kind of convincing. That, like, she's someone who has kind of put her sexuality in the back, back burner, but is yearning after this guy. And... She and Don are sort of the two actual characters, like they are actual humans in the show as mm-hmm. opposed to, you know, sort of dreadful nonsense monsters. It's still handled with a kind of eye for romance on HBO and cable TV that is worse than your average Sex in the City episode. Wait, do you not like Sex in the City? 
No, I I, I do okay, like good. it. As long, I, all right, as long I, as we can agree on that. I, I, did, I didn't like the second movie. I kind of liked the first one. But. The first movie's really good. The I mean, I think the New Year's Eve sequence where like Carrie's headed downtown to mm-hmm. meet up with Miranda, and you have you have everybody exactly where they're supposed to be, right? Like, you know, Brady and Steve are asleep, and they both have their hands over their heads in the same way. You know, Mister Big is eating alone in a restaurant, incapable of enjoying everything, anything. You know. I'm sorry. I just had an. I had something of an acid flashback when you said Sarah Jessica Parker during New Year's Eve in New York. Because <laughs> that, it, flashback to um, horrible images of New Year's Eve, the movie. So we can probably agree that we, that was not something that, that was not to the be best, nominated for Best Comedy or Musical. <laughs> that was not the best movie of 2011. But <laughs> It's true. It's uh... To wash uh, that taste out of my mouth, let's, uh, let's just wrap this Golden Globes talk up with... Uh, Best Picture for yeah. both the drama and uh, musical and comedy car- categories, which I still loathe that it's musical and comedy. Yeah. It's I like, it, I think the musical list, Les Mis is not anything close to a comedy. Put it in drama. Right. Bump, uh, Life of Pi, if you have to. Just yeah. put it in there. Um, on a sentimental note, I mean, well, what are you rooting for in each category? Uh, well, uh, you and I haven't announced like our fa- favorite or best movies of the year yet. So I do. I don't. I do an Oprah style giant post called "My Favorite Things." Mm-hmm. Um, that's you know drawn from all of the categories of entertainment that I write about. But I don't really believe in ranking things. Oh, okay. I, I'm obsessed with lists. I'm I like got, Johnny Ramone in that sense. I'm kind of like obsessed. Oh, with I got forced with. to do it in a bunch of critics polls this year. I just hated it. So. Oh. But well, anyway. A- anyway, I will save those for another. Um, recording, but for now, just sticking with these lists, it, with, with what I have um, for best motion picture drama, I gotta go with Django Unchained. Although of, we haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty yet. We, we haven't seen Zero Dark Thirty. There is that. Yeah, if yeah. I'm going with this list, um, I think it'll... I have to see Zero Dark Thirty, but from this list, which is Argo, Django Unchained, Life of Pi, Lincoln, and Zero Dark Thirty, I think it'll probably be Django Unchained or Zero Dark Thirty for me. Mm-hmm. D- Django Unchained is fascinating. I can't wait to talk about it because it's a weird movie and I don't think it consistently works. But in terms of like the density of ideas in the movie, it's fascinating. It, and it looks great. It is, it is a fascinating mess. Yeah. And just like everything else Tarantino does, there is this... He, it, every frame exudes this love of cinema that is just infectious, even if you're not a critic. Yeah. And even if you don't know what he's referencing, like even if you've never heard what a spaghetti western is, right. you'll still appreciate that it's just one big spaghetti western. Um, and how about uh, best motion, motion picture, comedy, or musical? Well, we got the best exotic Marigold Hotel. We got Les Miserables, Moonrise Kingdom. Salmon Fishing in the Yemen, and Silver Linings Playbook. It is bizarre to me that Salmon Fishing in the Yemen slipped in getting not just a, you know, best motion picture comedy or musical nod, but an acting nod for Emily Blunt. I mean, that was just sort of a nothing picture that kind of, I agree. you know, nobody saw. If you were going to give it to Emily Blunt, I would have given it to her for the five-year engagement. Yeah. <laughs> Which I loved. Yeah. But, um, uh, so in that category, what do you think? I got to go with Les Miserables. Mm, I would go with Moonrise Kingdom, which I think is Wes Anderson's best movie since um, The Royal Tenenbaums. And no mistake, it sort of focuses in the same way that Royal Tenenbaums does on a disaffected young girl. I mean, that the performance by Bill Murray in that movie, Francis McDormand, Bruce Willis. I mean, this sort of depth of Moonrise mm-hmm. Kingdom. I've seen that twice, and I would see it two more times. I just I loved it. I thought it was wonderful. Oh, I thought it was absolutely fantastic. I got to give the edge to Les Mis, though. But before I go on to quickly why, have you seen it yet? 
Um, I haven't. Um, I can't imagine that it would feel as original to me as Moonrise Kingdom. And I'm just, I'm a Wes Anderson stan, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, I you know, I would actually. Moonrise Kingdom is one of my favorite movies of the year, and if it was a combined category, I'd still be pulling for it. So. Oh, absolutely. Um, that, that sounds about right. And But uh, I got to go with Les Mis, because without saying too much, because again, just like Django, there's the embargoed issue for now, it's doesn't always work. At times it feels rushed, and even at like its two and a half hour plus length. I mean, it's trying to condense this like three hour musical into this movie, which itself is very sprawling. And people forget that Les Mis, as beloved and acclaimed as it is now, it still has the problems on stage with Mm. like pacing and its gigantic uh, narrative with many subplots. Like it was slammed by critics when it first came out, when it first hit the stage for that very problem. But despite those flaws, it still works on the strength of how exuberant um, the cast and crew seem with the grim, gut-wrenching music. Like, Mm. you'll be hearing about this a lot, but when the camera just stays on Anne Hathaway for, like, three minutes, an up-close shot of her singing live on set. Because that's how they recorded it. They had, like, an earpiece and a pianist playing offstage, and she's singing live on set so she doesn't have to overdub it. Right. It's just a gut-wrenchingly powerful delivery Mm. of, like, a solo number. And it's one of the scenes of the year. I mean, that alone is worth what, whatever you want, like Oscar bait, Golden Globe bait, uh, Teen's Choice Award bait. I don't know if they <laughs> would even be nominated for a Teen's Choice Award. Um, but I've always been head over heels in love with Les Mis, so perhaps this isn't a fair fight. Sure. I think, I mean, one thing I would say is that just sort of as a critic, there are sort of two points I want to make. The first is that I'm feeling really, really biased towards original screenplays. Like, I'm kind of played out on adaptations at this point, honestly. I'm just, I feel like there are so few adaptations that, to me, like, really bring something new to the material. This is one of the reasons I'm sort of bummed that Game of Thrones was left off the Golden Globes list, because I think that's an adaptation that's actually making its source material Mm -hmm. better as it goes. Um, It's sort of streamlining things, looking for, you know, sort of excessive plot to cut, bringing new life into new characters. I think... But for the most part, I'm just really burned on adaptations. The second thing I would say is I feel like we've seen a lot of movies this year that are either like way too long or despite being fairly long, aren't long enough. Um, you mm-hmm. were saying that about Les Mis. I sort of feel that way about um, The Dark Knight Rises, which I thought even at you know almost three hours actually should have been sort of two two and a half hour movies or even or one sort of three hour and 15 minute movie mm-hmm. and i feel like i mean this is year when we have a lot of long movies the hobbit is only almost three hours long and django unchained is i think 165 minutes zero dark 30 is almost three hours um so i feel like the long movie is coming back but in a kind of tentative way like people are willing to go over the two hour mark um for the first time in a long time i think sort of consistently but I feel like there's just there's something weird going on in people matching their narratives to the length of their movies. Like it's it feels very sort of fits and starty to me. And I feel like we've had a number of movies that just aren't as good as they could have been because they haven't had the audacity to be really long. Yeah, I I always think to myself, thank God the second Transformers was like two and a half hours long. That I mean that, that it, needed it is the Michael, artistic. It is Michael Bay's masterpiece. <laughs> I mean, you know if. If they hadn't made that trip to the Smithsonian Air and Space Museum, how else would we have understood the true power and the longevity of the Transformers? I mean, I just thought it added a lot to the mythology. It's visual poetry. 
It's true. It's true. But uh, <laughs> la- <laughs> pivoting back to Golden Globes for just yeah. one more point. Sure. Um, Jessica Chastain, along with Marion Cotillard, Helen Mirren, Naomi Watts, and Rachel Wise, is nominated for Best Performance uh, by an Actress in a Motion Picture Drama. She's mm-hmm. nominated for Zero Dark Thirty. Can we just talk for a quick moment about how, over the last couple of years, how good Jessica Chastain has been at picking the scripts? Well, and I mean, the thing is, she's she good with... in all sorts of different kinds of scripts, right? Yeah. I mean, did you see The Help? Uh, yes, I did. She's amazing in The Help. She is. Did you see um, Lawless, which mm-hmm. also came out this year, which I thought, oh, she's amazing in. Right, she's and she great. can do the, like, dippy Southern housewife thing. She can do the, you know, incredibly sort of harsh and difficult thing. I mean, I just... She can do the, like, great American Western type right. archetype. Right, I mean, she... like, Girlfriend is a multi-tool player. I mean, the only thing we haven't seen her do is sing or dance yet, pretty much. Has she done a... I'm trying to think she's done, like, a really sensual sex scene. That's well, uh, lawless with Tom Hardy, but that wasn't well. I mean, anything. anything that's like within five feet of Tom Hardy is extremely sensual. So I mean, that's so a, that, that whole movie, that like right. ninety-five minute movie. Tom Hardy just sort of glows with her certain sexuality. Um, that was one of the things that was really sad about Dark Knight Rising is that you know you don't see his lips. Right, right. If you don't see Tom Hardy's lips, <laughs> what's the point? Cast the Rock. Do something else. Also, I have to say, I think The Rock would have been amazing as Bane. Also, then he, you could have preserved the whole, like, Bane as a personal color thing, which is somewhat important. Huh. The movie should be reshot. Every scene with Bane in it. Let's get Dwayne The Rock Johnson in there. Let's see what... I love I, Dwayne Johnson no, I, I so do. dearly. I do. Obviously, I don't really mean this seriously, but The Rock is a good actor. Yeah. He, he's good. What's he been in recently? I, I, I mean, I even liked him... In like the Get Shorty sequel, which I thought was awful. Like he's the right. only thing. He's, he's good the about only that movie. thing that is meritorious about that film. God, that is one of the only movies I've ever walked out of. I saw I was at saw it at Grumman's Chinese Theater and just like, were I mean, you, were you for, at the premiere? Or? No, no, no. I was just there with the guy I was dating at the time who uh, lived in L.A. And it was just like, it was my first time in Grumman's Chinese too, which is an amazing old school oh, theater. I'm sorry, the experience was sullied right. so it's like, severely. God, really? I saw it for. <laughs> It was tragic. It was a huge waste of a movie-going experience. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's sort of sort of sensitive and angry in that in a way that I thought was wonderful. I mean, he's awesome in Fast Five. Like, he, yeah. he's becoming one of those guys who can elevate action pictures and do other stuff. And I sort of hope that he's done with the phase of his career where he's doing cheesy kids movies to sort of rebrand his image from the WWE. Right? Yeah. Like, I want to see him in a romantic comedy. You know, I'm trying to think. Has he been in one recently? No, he's. I don't think he's ever done a romantic comedy. Was Was there any romance in The Pacifier? <laughs> I, oh God! Oh, why must you remind me of these things? Well, um, we, we surely we have to devote another episode entirely to Dwayne the Rock Johnson. That's true. I think Absolutely. we should do at it least, like at least an, an all rock episode, all rock everything, all rock month, <laughs> rock month. <laughs> All right. Um, And so I've been traveling some and so a little bit out of the loop on screenings, although I am Mm -hmm. going to see this is 40 next week. Um, I'll see you there. But I'm sure all of our nerdy listeners are desperate to hear. Um, What did you think of The Hobbit? Well, um, okay. I was not a fan. I did not like it. And I'm adjusting right now for critical deflation because what i actually want to say is i really 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 didn't like peter jackson's the hobbit but that's because 
I I think J.R. Tolkien's work and maybe even the genre has never been particularly for me. So I've always had to adjust like how I sure. review like for example, like uh the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Um I can appreciate the artistic merit and how Peter Jackson and his crew really did make Middle Earth accessible to everybody, right. not just like fanboys and fangirls. And I can appreciate that. So I, I have to review it on a curve. But when watching it, it just it doesn't speak to me, which is unfortunate. I, I couldn't like accept the power of its narrative. Well, and the thing is, and, the narrative of The Hobbit is much less powerful than the narrative and, of Lord of the Rings. And that makes... I mean, it's a, it's a children's story in a really fundamental way. You know, it's a lot of silliness and, you know... Like, over half of it is very campy. Yeah. And I, I'm i talking to... Like, I went to see it with my girlfriend, who is a huge Hobbit, J.R. Tolkien, Lord of the Rings fan. Huge. And she she was cringing for half the movie because she was hoping that even though... Yeah, I could have... It's the text itself. It's whimsical and it's for children it can be a little silly. She was just hoping it wasn't too damn campy. Yeah. Which it really was for part of the movie. And I, I hope you do see it so you can yeah, I'll see it weigh weekend, in on that but... and let me know if you agree. But uh, it just didn't, do, just didn't do it for me. I mean, um, I'll, I'll write The Hobbit drinking game. Mm. And, like, see if Lots I can get anybody on board. Lots of things involving dwarves, you know, hitting each other with their heads. Yeah, every time they... Uh, sing a song that makes you think of like an ocean chanty or something every time Gollum reminds you of the uh, murdered pederast from the movie Seven like just take a shot of whatever uh, what, what's going to be the recommended liquor what should you smuggle what should t- our readers need to know what liquor should you smuggle into the theater to play the Hobbit drinking game just with? take a camelback full of natty okay I feel like the dwarf just- <laughs> I was going to say, you know, like mead or something, like serious beer, you know. If you're serious about Brandy it. Brandy wine. If you're serious about it, you're Middle Earth folk- folklore, uh, do that. I, but again, I can't see myself getting it. If you dress up, go with mead. All right. And uh, there's another movie coming out this Friday along with The Hobbit. Um, also, you could say Oscar bait, which I think The Hobbit tentatively qualifies bill Mur- it's bill murray doing his best daniel day lewis but with fdr right in hyde park on hudson yeah but a little different because he's not actually trying to like be fdr mm. in the same way daniel day lewis was definitely and many people would say um uh succeeded at being lincoln it's i wouldn't say it's a caricature of fdr but he's not trying to get the accent right he's he just happens to play Franklin Delano Roosevelt movie. Um, well, anyway, the movie is Hyde Park on Hudson. It's directed by Roger Mitchell, who is a very talented director who, who helmed uh, Notting Hill, which I loved, the romantic comedy with Julia Roberts and Hugh Grant. He did Changing Lanes, which had Samuel L. Jackson and Ben Affleck. And the movie, it's, it has this incredibly classic look. It, it's about, it's like loosely based on the true events of King and Queen of England coming to chill out with FDR and Eleanor Roosevelt um, at their Hudson estate. Which is uh, gorgeous. Yeah, absolutely. To talk about um, quashing Nazism. And this mm. was before like America actually got into the war and led to some hi- important historical developments on that front. Mm. Um, so it's a very intriguing premise. And it's... Uh, for, su- for for a movie that has such a classic look, it has a very fluid digital photography to it, mm. which I 
you should see it if just for that. It's extraordinarily impressive. And Bill Murray as FDR, like, what, what did you think when you originally heard that? Did you originally think stunt casting or did you think nothing of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it, you know, in as much as anyone makes sense to play FDR, and FDR is an interesting type, right? Because he's this sort of, you know, New York patrician of the sort that doesn't really exist anymore. Mm. Um, so it's not as if, it's, but is a recent enough creation that it's sort of hard to think of who you could slot in to play him. So Murray made as much sense to me as anyone else. Okay, that's fair. Um, I was talking to... Uh, I actually got to interview uh, Roger Mitchell, the director, about it and asked him about his casting choice. And it came up that, well, the FDR in real life was a drink-swilling, ladies' man, chain-smoking, incredibly charming frat boy yeah that's what he was so, uh, so i, I asked mean, him when you think of all that how on earth did you come to the conclusion that bill murray should be your fdr <laughs> i mean it it kind of makes sense when you link it together that way right i mean i think you know the thing about fdr is that i mean george w bush is fdr without the polio and without the actual sort of rising to greatness yes and, and without a couple of other things yeah including <laughs> eleanor who is awesome Yes. I mean, Eleanor Roosevelt is one of my favorite historical figures, so... Oh, she's great. And she's she's actually a bit role in this movie. This is more about FDR right. and his mitra- mistress played very deftly by Laura Linney. And FDR is played... Uh, I'm sorry, Eleanor Roosevelt is played by Rebecca Hall. Mm. Obviously, with the makeup and the prosthetics. Yeah. But in role where she's on screen and speaking for, like, probably a cumulative, cumulative four and a half minutes, she she leaves a mark. Mm. And... But... But unfortunately for you, you got to wait, I don't know, how much longer for the Eleanor Roosevelt movie, which hopefully well, they get Rebecca Hall to play because she is extraordinary for the short time she's on. Yes. No, um, you know, activist, lesbian, first ladies are, you know, uh, not, you know, 30 Rock may have said that Harriet Tubman was the sort of most boring person in the world to make a biopic about, but first ladies are harder. <laughs> uh, you could make a great m- movie out of Eleanor Roosevelt yeah well you could also make a great Harriet I mean Harriet Tubman actually led Union troops into battle right like she's a total badass Harriet Tubman vampire slayer (laughs) Uh, Harriet Tubman exorcist Uh, Harriet Harriet Tubman necromancer (laughs) okay so that's how the underground railroad worked right yes that's like the secret explanation oh yeah you didn't know that no, I didn't. I, it's, it's apparently a secret history that's been, you know, hidden from me. Um, I mean, I, on that note. <laughs> um, on that very informative <laughs> note. Yes. Harriet Tubman, Necromancer, 2014. Zoe Saldana will, of course, play Harriet Tubman. Oh, all the way. All the way. Absolutely. Once she's done playing Nina Simone. Um, well, until next week when we talk about Django Unchained, this is 40, and whatever else passes our desks. Whatever the hell is coming out, because... Uh, the year is almost over. It's we have true. like two hours until 2013. The Oscar bait is almost all on the table. That's true. Like this is, it, it, it's going out with like a poof. Not, yeah. Not, not even a whimper. I, yeah, it's been a strange year. Well, we will definitely have to do um, a best of edition of the podcast. And until then, dear listeners, we bid you adieu. Thank you so much for listening. Have a good one.